3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning listeners. It is the 10th of December. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Morning, Shaherazad. Good morning, Carly. We have a pretty um, slim presenter uh, panel options. Wait, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that me. I think I've been too early. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so unfortunately Priya can't make it today. We hope that um, they feel better and they'll come next week. Um, but apart from that, we've got a pretty packed show, don't we, Carly? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So first up, we're going to hear a conversation. I'm going to hear an excerpt from Digital Launch of the hyphenated Biennale 2020-2021. So we're going to listen to a conversation between Carol Shui and Joel Spring. Carol and Joel speak about anti-colonial Asian alliance, radio skid row and translation work. And then we're going to head into an interview with George Newhouse, Principal Solicitor and Director of the National Justice Project, who joins us to speak about the High Court of Australia's recent decision, ruling that the Federal Court has the power to hear the claims of over 50 refugees and asylum seekers. Claimants now have the opportunity to take action for breaches of duty of care whilst held in custody of the Australian Government. Uh, And then we'll head into an interview with Liz Crash. Um, who is a local historian of Melbourne and a prison abolitionist, as well as a co-creator of, of the Underfoot Project, a series of virtual tours uncovering the secret histories of Footscray. And so Liz will join us to speak about the, um, to speak about pin, the Pentridge Prison redevelopment and, uh, historically contextualize, to contextualize it, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's what you'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and then we are going to get Keith Quayle on the line. And Keith is a Malangapa Bakunji gay man raised on Darug country. He is currently on a community corrections order supervised by Community Corrections until August 2022. He is the founder of New South Wales Community Advocates for Prisoners and is currently on the Trans and Gender Diverse Criminal Justice System Advocate. Advisory Council and the Prisoner Interagency Advocacy Subcommittees and he's going to be talking about cops at Mardi Gras. Uh, and then Aminata will join us and Aminata is a true Aquarian vegan weirdo and there'll be a guest artist on Channel Cutie Pock hosted by a community-led queer program that connects uh, people of colour across Nam, Invisible on Friday the Dece- December 11th, and that's tomorrow at 4 p.m. And she also runs a potion and soap-making craft called Dinosaurs and Hearts. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. 
where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. And now to the news headlines. Young people who leave state care in Victoria face a grim future, with at least one-third homeless within three years, a report by the Commission for Children and Young People has found. The report also found 70% of those young people were living below the poverty line, and one quarter had contact with the criminal justice system. The Victorian government preempted two of the key recommendations by setting aside $64.7 million in the state budget last month to extend state care for young people by three years. The funding will enable young people to remain with their foster or kinship carer until they are 21 or receive an allowance to transition to living independently. Commissioner Leanna Buchanan said the funding was a significant and overdue investment to address the appalling outcomes faced by more than 600 young people who leave state care in Victoria every year. The report also found many young people in care, especially those living in staffed residential facilities, missed out on learning independent living skills, such as how to cook, clean, shop for food and budget. And up to Sydney, where a protest to take Mardi Gras back to its roots has been promised. Following the recent decision not to exclude New South Wales police from future parades, Aboriginal activists have said they will not give up the fight after a vote was held by the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. The vote at the organisation's annual general meeting saw 327 members in support of keeping police and correctional services in the parade, while 261 members voted to ban them from 2021 onwards. Pride and protest, which put forward the motion to ban police floats from future parades in recognition of Aboriginal deaths in custody and the Black Lives Matter movement, have now launched a takeover Oxford Street counter-protest to coincide with next year's Mardi Gras. Speaking to NITV, Malangapa and Bakanji man Keith Quayle said the close results of the vote tell him it will be inevitable for New South Wales police to be eventually banned from the parade. Mr Quayle said Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras is out of touch for allowing the police to continue to participate as the country becomes increasingly aware of the issue of deaths in custody. Community members are being asked to look out for inner north woman Bridget Flack, who went missing from Yarra Bend on November 30. The 28-year-old DJ and union worker was last seen by her friend on the morning of 30 November in Ligon Street, Carlton. She said that she was going to take a walk in a park in Fairfield, but despite contacting people via phone later in the day, never returned home. Hundreds of concerned friends, family and community members have searched inner city parks on Tuesday looking for her. Miss Flack is white, around 170 centimetres tall, thin, with shoulder-length brown hair. She is believed to be wearing black knee-length shorts, a pinkish-red T-shirt with green text and carrying a pink backpack. Anyone who sees Flack or has information about her whereabouts has been urged to contact the Melbourne North Police Station on 03 8379 Anyone interested in helping is encouraged to join the Facebook group. Have you seen Bridget Flack?
And that's all for today's news headlines on the 10th of December. Six years I've been in prison. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here with us, uh, Aboriginal Radio, and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners, we can't blame everything on the external. So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to be playing an excerpt from Digital Launch of Hyphenated Biennale 2020-2021. And we're going to be listening to a conversation between Carol Shue and Joel Spring. When you kind of make peace with that, if that's the right way to put it, it's not to say that it's good, but when you understand that that's inherently the quality of the structure, well, then you know that you know how you participate and you know where the line is. And I think, I think... For both of us, it was sort of a coming into um, being seen also in those things with each other, which was, I think, sort of a really like, it's an incredible thing to kind of gain from collaboration. And I think is sort of at the heart of why I think people want to share and collaborate um, and why we continue to and other people as well. I think it's um, like you said before, I, I don't feel, I don't feel I've ever been comfortable making things on my own and I, and I and I see I see the I see the same things that you're saying in in the inherent the inherent need to want to share and to um to build things together and and what that looks like across communities as well and I think sort of if we can I guess coming back to another moment is sort of thinking about how the role that language plays and I think both of us have sort of seen um our abilities or our positions um, to be able to help for um, the spreading of messaging through, let's say, translations or, or other sort of methods um, could be really interesting to think about in regards to, like, I know the work that you've been doing and have sort of been pushing through Triple um, A. If you could talk a little bit more about that and sort of, because that's really informed some of the ways that I've wanted to approach some things as well. Mm-hmm. Good weaving. Um, so I want to give a few examples, right, of translation work that has happened. Um, 
and yeah, like you know, I noticed Nikki doing translate, uh, doing like the like her acknowledgments to country in Cantonese as well, um, and that's something that you know, uh, Joe wanted to initiate for um, it was Radio Skip Row, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there was there was a there was a project in um, there was a project in attempting to build solidarity across different um, community broadcaster groups. So I, I had been working and, and and still participate sort of in a smaller capacity these days uh, with Radio Skid Row, which was a radio station built out of originally Redfern as Radio Redfern and. I think we can return to it as well because I think it's 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 a, it's an amazing sort of diagram of of what a kind of embedded history of place and relationship can bring to these conversations. But yeah, I approached you and and a bunch of my other um, great friends and collaborators and people that I wanted to learn more about their perspectives on some of these things to help me um, translate messages of solidarity that could be played on multilingual radio stations, um, acknowledging their um, participation in ongoing colonization there that the fact that they were on country and what that meant and and what it might mean to spread that message to their listeners um to varying degrees of success um it was an interesting project nonetheless because i think it you've got to do that sort of work to realize oh this isn't enough Mm. yeah and um so i guess like before you uh conceived of this project um I guess there were there there was last year's Invasion Day um, rally when I think uh, Triple A's along with um, other groups like um, Muslim Justice Collective, uh, who else? I think maybe maybe that might have been it. Um, basically, we translated the poster into like a lot of different languages, and you know like. I was, I was doing like the, the language, well, I was putting, you know, all these like translations into these posters, like copy and paste. Um, and they looked great, you know, um, me, my friend Ahmed, we, and, and, um, I think it was Yanni. We went around Brunswick and did, you know, like the typical thing of like putting, like we pasting languages next to each other. And it looked fucking awesome. But, um, you know, I also wonder, um, I also wonder whether this is enough. You know, this is like a reflection that I've come to. Um, when we flip language in this way, do we actually, like, like, do the people who look at it, who understand this language, actually understand sort of yeah that their positionality and like why they need to care um how indigenous sovereignty does relate to them and you know like the struggles are interconnected um i don't feel like translation in this way is enough it's not um in fact it can be also quite condescending um you know when when you sort of, I mean, maybe maybe I'll give an example of the condescension. So when I was um, younger and, you know, like new and enthusiastic to politics, I would, I would like want to share everything with my parents. 
I would want to tell them, you know, why is it important um, to care, you know, about all these things I care about. But but it became a thing, a dynamic where I was, you know, sort of like, you know, the educated university student lecturing to my parents. And that is so condescending. <laughs> that is um something that I, you know, recognize now as, you know, it it doesn't reach them because I'm not trying to meet them where they are, you know, like I haven't really, I hadn't at that time taken the time to sort of like recognize their struggles. Um, And then weaving that in, right. To sort of bring, bring, bring them to, I guess, like some sort of broad understanding of how these things are interconnected, like how anti-Asian racism, Sinophobia that they've like definitely experienced um, is connected to anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity. And yeah, I guess uh, that's sort of what I um, have been thinking a lot about, but when the public housing lockdown happened this year, um, I was also helping some friends, um, uh, friends who do Southeast Mutual Aid work, um, Hamile Awani, uh, we were doing a lot of translations and they were, um, quite focused on, I mean, uh, African languages, which is, you know, um, understandable because they're African and, um and also i guess like how the government and media de- actively deprioritize african languages um but at one point you know uh they came to me and they were like you know there's like cambodian people burmese people um Chinese and Cantonese speaking, uh, Mandarin and Cantonese speaking people, um, especially like elders who, who like weren't like had, yeah, I guess like they weren't being served. They weren't mm. being served at the early stages of like that lockdown. Um, yeah. and I think it was specifically from working with them that I understood um sort of like the depth the depths that it takes to translate things because it's about working in that crisis moment it's about um like making sure that you know they know that you're on their side when you're doing the translation work because um these government numbers that you know people are told to call they don't they they put people in loops um, they don't, they don't take people anywhere. They don't get people's needs served. So, yeah, I want to acknowledge, you know, all the learnings that I have from, from that, but also, um, someone who I worked with, Blossom, Blossom, um, who is a professional translator and we ended up, I, I mean, like I've never met her before in real life, but we ended up collaborating, um, and, then I got got this like deeper understanding of like the translation industry and how it fails people at mar- multiply marginalized intersections, you know, at it on a daily basis. Yeah. So I think translation um, 
I suppose, like, I want to bring this back to the art context, maybe. Translation um, is incredibly important because it, in a way, it means that we redirect who we um, redirect our sort of like attention to who we who we who who we want to speak to who maybe like doesn't usually get access to you know like art spaces um but then you know we're still on that ideas level we're still on the um oh wow questions coming from the audience yes <laughs> yeah. anyway i'll stop there basically yeah I, I guess i'm I'm trying to sort of like draw out you know these like two um th- these two spaces that we're in which is first you know the the art the intellectual the cultural um it is a space of privilege and visibility um but you know and and i think is worthwhile you know in with as a community and within and of itself but also you know there's like a group of people who just don't um aren't communicated to mm. yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah that's and just then we heard an excerpt of digital launch of hyphenated biennale 2020 2021 and we heard a conversation between carol shway and joel spring and they mostly focused about the work of anti-colonial asian alliance radio skid row and translation work and uh, now i think we're going to go into a song so we're going to play one from maisha And this song is Neon Moon.
and the Wurrubinda Singers. And now, George Newhouse joins us on the line. He is the Principal Solicitor and Director of the National Justice Project, and he joins us today to speak about the High Court of Australia's recent decision ruling that the Federal Court has the power to hear the claims of over 50 refugees and asylum seekers. Claimants now have the opportunity to take action for breaches of duty of care whilst held in the custody of the Australian Government. Welcome, George. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning, Carl. So, first up, can you tell us a little bit more about the National Justice Project? Um, Look, the National Justice Project is a not-for-profit legal service who really focus on eliminating discrimination. And our particular focus over the past years has been uh, First Nations rights, but also the rights of refugees and people with disabilities and often there's an intersection between disability and people's rights particularly in incarcerated situations and that's what we've seen in immigration detention prison and youth detention we also focused on discrimination against uh, individuals in healthcare, uh, which is surprisingly an area where people really do suffer discrimination Mm. And now to the High Court's decision, um, which is available online, and I read a little bit of it, and the first two paragraphs of the Court's Reasons for Judgment sets out the matter really well. So I really encourage listeners um, to actually read the decision. And it says, The respondents in the matter have instituted proceedings in the Federal Court of Australia, alleging in various ways that the appellants, the Minister of Home Affairs and the Commonwealth, breached a duty of care to provide them adequate medical treatment on Nauru. These appeals are not concerned with whether the respondents were owed the pleaded duty of care or whether that duty, if owed, was breached. So can you speak about the background of this case and how the matter has come to be before the High Court? Yes, look, after six years on the roof, um, a lot of the children who'd been transferred there by the Australian government and who had been found to be refugees were really... Um, suffering extreme mental health breakdown. We had children as young as 10 years old. I, I, don't, I know it's morning breakfast, but as young as 10 years old uh, attempting suicide on the roof, and there was no uh, pediatric, psychiatric care available for those children on the roof. So we commenced proceedings on behalf of them and, and then later for their families in the federal court 
seeking urgent injunction to force the Australian government to provide them with the basic care that they needed to survive. I mean, the medical evidence we received was that if these children did not get moved to an inpatient paediatric care facility, they could die. Um, they were subsequently transported to Australia and the families and the children are continuing their claims to hold the federal government accountable in the federal court. Now, the minister did not like the fact that these proceedings were being brought and that um, the court was making orders exposing the horrific treatment that these children were receiving. And so they appealed to the High Court, arguing that under the law, only the High Court of Australia, that's the only court in the land, could hear these cases. The High Court saw through this ruse or trick that the, that the government was trying on and said, no, <laughs> um, the courts, all lower courts, do have the power to hear these cases um, and the minister will just have to try his luck in those jurisdictions. And I think they even made the comment that they weren't going to be used as a post box. Mm. I mean, it was incredibly insulting suggestion by the, the minister that everything, every one of these cases had to run through the High Court and the High Court would just be a post box and send them back down to other courts. So ultimately the High Court were, I think, quite um, uh, offended by the proposal and, and really slapped it down. Mm. Can you speak a bit more about how you think this decision um, allows for the voices of asylum seekers to be heard through a judicial process? Look, Carly, that's a really good question. We live in times of fake news, unfortunately. Australia's not as bad as the United States, but it's still a, a society where people don't base their decisions on facts or policies, but rather on opinion. And but but the courts are still one area where people tend to accept uh, a decision. So it's vital that these individuals have their day in court so that the terrible conditions that they're suffering are exposed. The government likes to tell us that everyone's living on a holiday island when they've been um, transferred to Nauru or PNG. Uh, the reality is very different, and it's through these court processes that the government's conduct or misconduct can be exposed and um, people can hear the truth about what's really going on in our name in offshore detention. Mm. And, I mean, the Minister of Home Affairs actually has a lot of power in um you know, the Migration uh, Legislation, the Migration Act. Um, can you speak about some of the issues that you currently see in refugee and immigration law in Australia? Yes. Look, the, the Minister has way too much power, and what you're seeing in this case is it's not a constitutional crisis, but you're mm. seeing a constitutional issue being played out. What's happened in the Migration Act is that Parliament is trying to take away the ability of courts to review uh, government decisions or the executive's decisions. And whilst there's always this tension between the executive, the judiciary and parliament, courts have a very important role to ensure that our leaders and politicians don't exceed their power and don't abuse it. 
what the government tries to do uh, with their legislation these days is to exclude the courts. And, and this case highlights um, that policy because the case really uh, is about trying to restrict people's access to the courts. And the court in this case said, no, mm. we're drawing a line and people can have access to the courts. One, one major problem, though, with refugee law is that under our constitution, it does appear that people can be held indefinitely mm. in immigration detention. And that means people who've never even committed a crime could be held, you know, indefinitely until they leave this country, or until they're taken somewhere else. And that is presenting a big problem. It's presenting a physical and mental health crisis um, uh, in immigration detention, particularly under COVID. And it's an issue that really does need to be resolved. These, anyone who's a refugee needs to be resettled as quickly as possible, not held in detention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but back to this court case. So now that the High Court has established that lower courts have jurisdiction to hear the claims of asylum seekers seeking to establish that the Australian government has been negligent and breached its duty of care, um, what can listeners do to support the National Justice Project with the upcoming federal court cases? Oh, look, that's a very kind of you to ask that question. There's a lot your listeners can do. I mean, um, and, and just before we talk about the National Justice Project, there's some fantastic organisations down in Melbourne. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is doing great work and they work hand-in-hand hand with us. Um, but um, we are currently running a campaign because each of these uh, cases, and we have about 50 of them, uh, need expert reports. We need uh, medical legal specialists to give reports on the health care of the individual. Um, so if you're a, uh, a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist or psychologist, we could definitely need, uh, we need your help. But um, if you're not one of those individuals, um, we need to pay for those reports so that we're running a campaign at the moment. And you can find it on our website, uh, www.justice.org.au. That's org.au. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for that, George. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about your hopes um, and like how this will actually proceed in the federal court cases and maybe a little bit more about the people that you're representing um, and the four test cases? Well, we are hoping that um, by exposing the government's cruel and inhumane policies, particularly in the way that they destroy children's lives and their families, um, that people will push for more humane policies. Uh, the fact that young children um, are being kept in detention or on remote islands for years uh, and harming them is something that needs to stop. And the more that people know about these awful policies, the more we might be able to see some humanity uh, come to the fore. So... I do hope there is change. There's been some recent cases where people are being released from held detention based on the fact that the government wasn't actively returning them to where they came from. And I'm hoping that in time they'll either be resettled or released. Yeah, we're definitely all hoping that here at 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast as well. Well, thank you so much, George, for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure, always a pleasure. <laughs>
And just then we spoke with George Newhouse, Principal Solicitor and Director of the National Justice Project, about the recent decisions from the High Court of Australia um, regarding how the Federal Court now has the power to hear the claims of over 50 refugees and asylum seekers. That, uh, uh, and those claimants now have the opportunity to take action for breaches of duty of care whilst held in the custody of the Australian Government. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377 3CR ensures that our voices Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station so it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast 8.55am and now it is time to play a song and this one is 22 Clan by Barker <laughs> Twenty-two clan, baby. Yeah, yeah. Set their doors, set the record straight. My team heavyweight. One more rep and we the first to originate. Y'all can try to discriminate, you've been doing it anyway. We just keep stepping, coming up, watch us elevate. Doom side, Layla Bark, rivers in the pen rip. Mac Bridge ripping, no, I never let the pen slip. Mary's at the crime, bro, way up to the ridge. One love to the mob, out in West Side. You better be ready to get it, I'm spitting the kick in the rhythm and moving the difference. I go on and listen, we're bringing the vision, the better get with it, we got them all dripping. Listen, Murph from the Mac Town. Not here in black town, no question about it, Joe. We got to bring it back, so what's the hats? Who we be? Wonder with the 22 clan. Who we be? Wonder with the 22 clan. Where we be? B N E down to S Y D. Steady rapping for our original peace. Who we be? Wonder with the 22 clan. Who we be? Wonder with the 22 clan. Where we be? B N E down to S Y D. Steady rapping for our original peace. Yes, I'm oppressed, but you were pressing the mark. And the run the ball up. What? 
from the big smack, but this kid is connected. Well respected, I'm a reflection of my mother's perception. I stay flexing, even when I question some of my lessons. It's a blessing I have this melanin in my complexion. I got my mob on my back. Curry cried to the death. We're gonna braid them more black until we the last ones left. And I am backing down from no one till I give my respect. Yes, I'm a little radical, but you just get what you get. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Where we be? B-N-E down to S-Y-D. Steady repping for our original peace. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Who we be? Running with the 22 clear. Where we be? B-N-E down to S-Y-D. Steady repping for our original peace. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am. So Liz Crash joins us now, um, and she's a local historian of Melbourne and prison abolitionist as well as the co-creator of the Underfoot Project, which is a series of virtual tours uncovering the secret histories of Footscray. And so Liz sorry, (laughs) joins us today to speak about and historically contextualise the recently launched redevelopment of Pentridge Prison in Coburg into a retail and hospitality precinct. Good morning, Liz, and thanks for joining us. So this is not a very pleasant yeah, subject. Good good morning, Liz, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so firstly, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, of course. Um, so I am a local historian. Um, I work with um, uh, like a range of topics predominantly I'm focused on uh, I guess like history from below so history from the point of view of those who are not in power um, so not big people but the little people um, and also the history of materials so stone wood uh, tannery products meat that kind of thing so that's what drove my interest in Pentridge is that um, it's very much a product of its environment at the time. Yeah, totally. Um, and also, I think they had a tannery and quarry and all that sort of stuff in Pentridge. So uh, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what, what happened at Pentridge? Uh, what's this redevelopment? Okay, so Pentridge Prison was originally built in about 1850 as a kind of overflow 
station from the old old Melbourne jail, um, and also as kind of a workstation because they were building Sydney Road. They were using prison labour to build Sydney Road. Um, and over time, uh, it grew um, in about like the late 1850s, like early 1860s, it kind of became this huge, imposing edifice that we know today. Um, And this was obviously a very severe prison. So um, prisoners kind of in the earlier stages of of Pentridge, um, they were always in chains. So they worked in chains, they slept in chains, they were fed in chains. Um, There was no shelter, really. Later, um, it still, when it was a proper building, it still remained like very severe. So floggings were common. People would often die of infection caused by this flogging. People were often in solitary for 25 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, um, people would be put in hoods, um, and referred to only by their numbers. So it's a very, very severe, um, history. Um, it's not, it's not a pleasant one. And this is a history that goes on until the very, very contemporary times. So Pentridge was only closed in 1997. Um, and right up until then, like, prisoners and incarcerated people continued to complain of very, very brutal treatment from guards. So, um, and the, but obviously, <laughs> it's also prime real estate um, now. So there's been, um, yeah, a redevelopment um, of as a, an apartment precinct, so that's been going on for quite a few years now. But what's recently happened is that now being a portion of the site has now been reopened as a shopping centre and cinema complex. Yeah, I mean, like. Um I live across the road from Pentridge, uh, and, you know, the developments were happening for quite some time. Um, and yeah, I think, like, a lot of my neighbours, um, talk about it, like, since it's been opened, which has been quite recently, I think the past two weeks or something, um, uh, a lot of my neighbours go, oh, it's the haunted place, it's the haunted place. Um, like, why would they, uh, put a supermarket there? Like, no one wants to go, um, get like their groceries from there as well um but also uh walking through that place when it was opened there was sort of these really strange uh well not strange but like these uh decontextualized quotes that have been um uh, put around the place um and also uh just these this giant lettering saying panopticon um and i think there was oh a panopticon God. in there um so can you just talk about i guess um this sort of, uh, uh, I would just call it capitalist architecture, but like, um, about, um, this sort of erasing and, um, uh, like capitalist washing maybe of the horrors of prisons. Totally. I mean, like, this is something that is so common in Australia, right? This kind of con- this convict kitsch. Um, you see it in like other places like Port Arthur prison as well, um, and the old Melbourne jail. Um, like that people, they'll be selling like merchandise, um, which is like water bottles saying escaped convict and stuff like that. But it's pretty weird to see it at a prison that was so recently in operation, you know, where there's, there's many, many people with a living memory of the brutality of that prison. Um, the, the kind of like weird, like stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. Like the kind of prison themed architecture. You can actually have a look at their heritage interpretation master plan. Um, it's pretty intense, but yeah, like, 
like they talk about how the heritage of the site is like its unique selling point. Um, so it's very, very much like something that they're trying to kind of justify as, oh, we're memorialising the site. But if you look at their own documents that they're sending to investors, it's very clear that they are leaning into this history as a selling point. Um, they believe that it's profitable. And you can see this really, yeah, it's that, it's so weird how they've got this kind of like, um, like this logo that's like a lock. Um, now for the centre, they've got, um, I remember I saw, saw um, plans for the car park the other day that was like, there could be themed, um, there could be a theme for each level, you know, that could help you remember where you've cracked your car and also, um, you know, really lean into the overall heritage selling point of the, the development. So, for example, there was a proposal. I'm not, I haven't been to the car park. Like, I'm not sure if this is true um, or what they went with, but um, they uh, there was a proposal to say, oh, instead of level A, level B, level C, why don't we call it, like, level um, a, 1850s, work, you know, 1860s, punishment, 1870s, solitude. Um, so very, very strange behaviour. And I find, yeah, the, the fact... I hadn't seen anything about the Panopticon um, being referenced in their um, site architecture. It doesn't surprise me at all, but it, it's pretty fun. But, yeah, they had three um, Panopticons at Pentridge that have, were since demolished um, due to overcrowding. They couldn't kind of commit to the, the classic panopticon architecture, um, which was kind of a, a tower at the middle of a circle with um, little individual cells um, carved out of it, like a wedge, wedges out of or pie slices. Um, you know, and there'd be a guard in the middle who might be watching you if you were in any cell, but who might not. Um, and the idea of that was that potential of being watched coupled with constant solitude. So um, people who were you know, in those little wedges, that was their one hour of exercise um, when they were being let out of cells where they were in solitary contemplation. Um, but yeah, they ended up actually abandoning that policy, not because it was inhumane, but because of overcrowding. Um, so they replaced it with just putting people in the hood. Um, in a in a shared yard where they weren't allowed to talk to each other. Uh, so, but yeah, those are panopticons. You can see the ruins of the foundations of them. But again, like it's a very brutal and a hectic history, and there's the difference between memorialising that history and yeah, like making it into um, prison kitsch. Mm. Um, and as you've been speaking, I'm actually really interested in um, perhaps learning a bit more about how this uh, development uh, got accepted. Because just from uh, speaking with other folks about it, um, I heard uh, along the grapevine, and this is not like <laughs> um, I haven't been able to double check this. Okay. Um, yeah, so maybe you can talk to it a bit, um, but was that... Uh, the requirements or the reason it got accepted as a redevelopment was like, oh, as long as you honour the history or something like that. Can you speak a bit more about about that, like about why this development uh, was accepted in the first place? Well, it goes back to 99. Um, so in 97, the site was closed, and that was because of basically like, um, increased urban development. So initially, um, 
the Coburg area was kind of on the urban fringe. Um, that was no longer the case in 97. Also, the prison was kind of... There were issues with conditions at the prison. I mean, obviously, um, it's not like what I think about it is like, oh, the prison should have just kept running as a prison. Um, but it was also part of a big, I guess, push towards prison privatisation um, at that time. So that was kind of what was going on there politically. Um, so in terms of the kind of um, specific heritage provisions, yeah, like, so the National Trust has spoken to this. There are some buildings that are protected and that they're not um, allowed to knock down. But, yeah, there's. I think what you're talking about is this thing called adaptive reuse. Um, so... Yeah, like they are required to, they're required to keep facades and stuff. They're not necessarily required to keep interiors. They're not necessarily required to keep um, everything in place. Um, they, dem- they and initially, I recall, they wanted to demolish um, H Division, which is, um, have you heard of H Division? Are you familiar with that? No, I might just no. um, give it a bit of a summary for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, so H Division was um, uh, was often known as like Hell Division. So it was a particularly strict um, part of the, of the prison um, where people who were admitted to it were forced to go through on admission, like what was often called like the licorice mouth. The licorice um, named after the black rubber of the guard's truncheon. So... Yeah, everybody kind of who was admitted to H division or held division would, yeah, would get beaten up often to the point of unconsciousness. So you can hear people talk, um, like Chopper Reed and people like that talk about it in their memoirs, but many people have talked about it. Um, and this is, um, a site that was, had some heritage protections, but didn't have like the highest level of heritage protection. And therefore, um, the, the, developers wanted to knock it down um, and there was a thought at some point that they would be permitted to do it because the, there's a loophole in the heritage protections where if there's like unfair or like a, a really intense level of economic um, in, of economic um, consequences for developers and they don't have to stick to heritage provisions. So if it would lose them a lot of money. Um, they they may not have to do it. So in the end, what they did was they um, partially demolished um, the, the rock breaking yards, um, and those are now oh, I forgot what those are. There's some kind of courtyard or something. But I mean, I think that the really hectic thing about the Pentridge redevelopment is that they, when they were in redeveloping, they they found plenty of unmarked um, graves. So this is when um. Uh, there weren't actually very many executions at Pentridge. Um, there were some, though, about 10. Um, but most of the groves um, and human remains at Pentridge are transferred from the old Melbourne jail. So when they were digging up the foundations of the old Melbourne jail to redevelop part of it as RMIT, they found mm. yeah, a lot of human remains that they'd expected would have um, dissolved by now. They were buried with quicklime that was supposed to dissolve the bones. They found that that wasn't the case. So during the middle of this excavation, they um, dug up what looked like 
of Ned Kelly. And there's a bunch of, yeah, like school kids who were standing by scrambled and started to steal the bones. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so, and a lot of bones, a lot of human remains were mm. lost in the transfer. So they were transferred to Central Tresden. Um, those, a lot of those were exhumed during um, excavation. Um, yeah. So some of them... Sorry, Liz. I think we're like running out of time as well, but we'd love to get you back on and talk more about, Uh, I guess, the, no, no, um, I guess, um, about sort of like the, the the castle architectures of so-called Australia. Um, and this is just the latest example, um, of that since it's found in as a penal colony. Um, so yeah, let's get you back on and talk more about it. Um, and we'll just have to go into our next interview now, but thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, oh, I could talk about it all day. Um, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Um, Bye. And that was Liz Crush, uh, who is a local historian of Melbourne and prison abolitionist. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. At the Mardi Gras AGM on the Saturday the 5th of December, Pride in Protest moved a motion to remove police and corrective service officers from the parade in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. The motion did not pass and today we speak with Keith Quayle about why cops in uniform have no place in Mardi Gras. Keith Quayle is a Malanyaka Barkindji gay man raised on Darug country. He is currently on a community corrections order supervised by Community Corrections until August 2022. He is the founder of New South Wales Community Advocates for Prisoners and is currently on the Trans and Gender Diverse Criminal Justice System Advisory Council and the Prisoner Interagency Advocacy Subcommittee. He is a member of Pride in Protest, SWAP and Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Members Committee. Thank you so much, Keith, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you for that lovely intro. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, tell us about the AGM and what happened on Sunday the 5th of December. Yeah, so so we had the the AGM uh, on Saturday and, uh, yeah, we're all biting our uh, fingernails, uh, I guess, um, waiting for the results. Um, You know, 45% of the room were in support uh, of the majority of our motions. None of them did get through, but um, I'll also like to mention that none of the uh, amendments to uh, the Constitution that uh, the Board suggested, uh, none of their motions got through, such as uh, extending, uh, calling off periods for new members and uh, proxies, uh, allocated proxies, 20 I think they wanted per person. So those we found to be undemocratic and... um, you know, I, I think it's more uh, the question. It's not um, if the police are going to be banned. I just think it's when. And um, yeah, so I think yeah, we're just going in hard with that. And um, I think that um, you know, it's up to them whether they want to come to the table or not. And um, either way, I mean, it's going to happen. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. And um, could I just ask you for list- to tell the listeners a bit about? why removing cops from the parade is such an important issue and also talk about how uh, you have um, 
proposed this motion previously in 2019 and it seems like momentum is building. So you just said then that it feels inevitable to you that this is going to happen. Yeah, could you just talk about like the importance of this motion um, and the kind of work that Pride and Protest is doing around this? Sure, yeah. Um, so the, like, personally for me, I mean, the importance of this issue, um, I've been incarcerated uh, and I've had family members that have died in custody uh, you know, one of them, namely Mark Quayle, being in uh, the Royal Commission. Um, so, you know, I, I think it would be very uncommon for any Aboriginal person uh, out there to be unaffected by Aboriginal deaths in custody. And in terms of the 2019, I believe uh, we had 20% uh, of the room. Uh, you know, it's up to 40%, as I mentioned. So I think the momentum has... Uh, built itself uh, around this idea and, you know, around the idea that, uh, you know, it's not just a hashtag, this Black Lives Matter movement and that it is very much a local issue. And um, I think people are starting to wake up, you know, realising that. And in terms of um, the work that I do with Pride and Protest, um, I'm fairly new to the collective. They've been doing amazing work. You know, um, not only on this campaign, but other campaigns in the past. And um, I'm really humbled to be, you know, a part of a collective that, you know, is really advocating for, you know, these issues that all of our community face. And I think, you know, to make a direct link there, you know, I think you've, you've seen with, um, you know, Bridget Flack and the lack of uh, police resources that they're providing down in Melbourne, and it took the queer community to create a Have You Seen Bridget Facebook page. And we'll, you know, be also, you know, um, any out flyers uh, for them. So, you know, I think that it always has been a community response and we don't really... I think, it, you know, it's well known within the commu queer community that police aren't our friends and... Um, we're the ones that usually do all the hard work on the ground, grassroots, collective stuff to get the rights that, you know, we, we have today. So, you know, I don't think it's really that far-fetched what we're doing. And I really would like uh, for all of the queer community to get involved with us and, you know, um, and, 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 and contribute in, in some small way, you know, because it, it certainly isn't. You know, uh, uh, just for one individual, it, it's for the most vulnerable in our community, and namely at the moment. You know, and, and in history, it's been trans women of colour and, and and our trans and gender uh, trans and gender diverse community members. Mm. And Keith, I know at the moment it just feels like you know you're pushing back against like the police unions, the police. But I'm really interested in um, like how you want Mardi Gras to be. Like, what do you envision it to be? Yeah, so thanks for asking that question. Like, I, I think like a lot of a lot of the articles, you know, it's been around counter protest and uh, you know, and and I just want to make it clear that you know, um, pride and protest, you know, we 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 don't piggyback off Mardi Gras. Like, we we want to host the real Mardi Gras for the people, and you know, at the moment it is in just discussion uh, stages and planning logistics, um, but you know. I think the idea of it, you know, is that we would love to see a massive potluck. We would love to see, you know, uh, 
artists, local, you know, and, and international and regional, you know, LGBT uh, plus artists, you know, to showcase their work. You know, I think all of the things that you you see, you know, it's not about rewriting, you know, what is. It, it's just about uh, taking, you know, things that are already successful in our community and community events and 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 focusing that more on our annual day rather than celebrating all these corporate sponsors that couldn't give a shit about us 364 other days of the year. That's absolutely right. And that sounds so great. So this is all part of the um, event that you're kind of planning for next year's March date. Is that right, Keith? Yeah, that's right. So it's on our March 6th and um, there's uh, a Facebook event, Save the Date. Uh, so, yeah, if you get get on um, Pride in Protest, uh, it, it, it's up there and um, please get involved any way that you can. That sounds so, so excellent. Um, and just back on the um, issue of the Mardi Gras uh, AGM, so the, the CEO I just saw released a statement saying that the police accord between the Mardi Gras organisation and New South Wales police um, was going to be reviewed or looked at um, and they're talking about this kind of emphasis on First Nations people and LGBTIQ plus identifying people of colour, trans and gender diverse people um, speaking yeah. to New South Wales police. Is this, do you see this, like, is this a response to um, the Pride in, Pro- uh, Pride in Protest motion and if so, like, can you talk about why this is a completely um, insufficient response? Look, I, I don't know if it is in a direct response, I think, you know, um, but what I can say is that our New South Wales Community Advocates for Prisoners has been invited to the roundtable next year. So our positions are we, you know, don't want any MOU with New South Wales Police or their associations, but I think that um, I'll certainly go along to the interview with an open mind and, um, you know, hear what they have to suggest, but... You know, I think in our mind and as a collective pride and protest, you know, I think any dealings with the police at this current climate, you know, I, I just think that, you know, it's not only hypocritical, but it's also, uh, you know, it's not not in the right interest for our community. And, that, and that's, uh, that's a position that I take very seriously and I think that other people in the collective take seriously. So I think, you know, weighing up all those you know, uh, options, you know, I think uh, it's worth going along, but, you know, uh, and with an open mind, but, um, you know, I think it, 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 it's important to make clear that, you know, uh, we're not willing to just jump on board with making uh, agreements or amendments with New South Wales Police. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and something that you actually talked a bit about before is the commodification of Mardi Gras now. And so there's so much corporate interest, like ANZ and Qantas are increasingly becoming part of Mardi Gras. So um, is Pride and Protest also moving motions to bar these corporations? Yeah, namely, uh, you know, um, we, we have other members, you know, um, that are more well-versed, I guess, in this campaign, Um but, you know, I, I think it's well known that Qantas, you know, uh, they're one of two airlines that, uh, you know, transport refugees back to, uh, mm. you know, essentially their, their demise and, and, and in some cases their death. Mm. You know, I, 
I just it, you, and uh, you know with with the pink washing with ANZ like you know I, I I think they're all lovely ideas you know and I think they they're great you know on paper um, when that's translated in into what they're actually offering the community I, I, you know I, I just uh, you know a gay TM like the money that they spend on all that I think you know could be spent you know in in, in much more effective grassroots ways on bettering uh, the lives of, you know, our LGBT plus siblings, you know, and, and I, I just think that it's it's really lost the true meaning of what it is, and that's certainly where, you know, we as a collective, you know, want to invite everybody in the community, you know, namely people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that can't afford to go to these, you mm-hmm. know, um, suit and Thai events, you know, we, we really want it, you know, to just bring it back to, you know, and have the elements of celebration and protest mm. and activism, you know, but essentially uh, also make a political statement that we're still here and we're not going away. And just because you, you know, uh, uh, choose certain few gay people, namely white cis gay men and lesbians, are... Uh, you know, that, that isn't sufficient for the rest of the community that gets affected by police violence, that gets affected by refugee issues, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. No, thank you so much, Keith, because it's really, I don't know, it's just so great to hear you emphasising that thing of idea of celebration of actual community, LGBTI plus community, and really celebrating, um, you know, both the political resistance of that community, but also the art and um, just important, like, yeah, community activity. So I, could I just get you to talk a little bit about um, how people could find out more about Pride in Protest and the other actions that you guys are taking? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, if you just uh, type in um, Pride in Protest, uh, either on Facebook, Instagram, and we also have Twitter, um, you can get involved that way. Uh the event um, is linked, uh, is pinned at the top. So, you know, and, and it's really it's really great because we've had, you know, over a thousand people interested and over 300 saying that they're attending. And this is only within, you know, a, a couple of weeks space. So, you know, I think the momentum's certainly there. And, um, you know, we really like, I want to, you know, emphasise as well that it really is a community uh, and collective response. So please get involved. We, you know, we value you. We value you. We value your ideas. And um, you know, I think the the more the merrier. You know, and the more diverse the merrier. As well. Thank so. you so much, Keith. Thank you so much for speaking to us about that. And um, also really looking forward to that event next year. No, thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. And just then we heard from Keith Quayle, who is a Malangapa. Barkindji gay man raised on Durham country and he's a part of Pride in Protest who moved a motion on Sunday the 5th of December at the Mardi Gras AGM to remove police and corrective service officers from the parade. And now we'll go into a song by Bosch. Uh, it's called John Bianqua. Il est sur le nez, je sais de passer incognito. Sur le B, je vais ce qu'il est condé le comico. Je vais une go passer, je la verrai peut-être pas deux fois. Quand je vais la voir, je prends ma mère voix. Bien ou quoi T'habites dans le coin ou quoi Je t'ai vu passer dans l'allée, ton boule me rend romantique. Pièce, il fait des appels de phare. 
à droite, je suis obligé de réagir. Parce qu'elle est tombée. Elle fait la meuf qui a plein de principes. Je lâche l'affaire, je retourne faire mon bif. Le soir, elle voit sur YouTube, maintenant c'est elle qui insiste. Elle qui insiste. Elle qui insiste. Elle est tombée. Le bas du dos est bien bombé. Elle est tombée. Tout le monde veut la gérer. Elle est tombée. Elle veut que de me regarder, mais je pompe. Qu'est-ce qu'elle est tombée? Qu'est-ce qu'elle est tombée? Il est 4 ans passé. Faut que je rentre chez moi. Jamais sans mes potos, jamais sans mon queuglo. Jamais, jamais. Qui t'a pour le coco, qui t'a pour les tables, qui t'a pour le télo. Si t'es belle, bonne ma chérie, donne ton number. De, toi tu ressembles beaucoup à Amber. T'as déjà posé ton histoire d'amour, je m'embeur. Tu veux pas te faire gérer alors qu'à ou café là. Pourquoi tu me regardes, tu veux savoir si j'gagne ton terre moi. La go est douce, le négro est brut. Ça va finir par coller car les opposés s'attirent. La drogue est douce, le ton carré dur. Chaque fois que je me rapproche de l'espace, je veux finir dans sa lune. Elle est tombe, le bas du dos est bien bombé. Elle est tombe, tout le monde veut la gérer. Elle est tombe. Regardez, mais je pense qu'est-ce qu'elle est tombe, qu'est-ce qu'elle est tombe. Il est quatre passé, faut que je rentre chez moi. Bon, je peux pas rentrer seul, des belles gouttes dans la boîte, il s'agit de faire un choix. Il est cinq ans passé, je suis toujours pas chez moi. Il est six ans passé, je suis même pas fatigué, il y aura un tour du monde. Elle est tombe, elle est tombe, elle est tombe. And that was Bian Kua by Bosch. And joining us right now is Aminata, who is a true Aquarian vegan widow. And they'll be a guest artist on Channel QTPOC, which is hosted by Invisible, which is a community-led queer program that connects people of colour in Nam. And that is tomorrow on Friday, December 11th at 4pm. Uh, so welcome, Aminata. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're so welcome. And can you just tell us a little bit about that song? Because that's actually a song that you sent in. Yeah, yeah. So I just discovered this song a few months ago. Um, on Instagram, actually, I was just following this French girl who posted it. And um, it just reminded me of home because the song is like the guy is saying, Bien quoi. And it's something, it's something you say, like, on the street, like, wesh. Like, yo, how you going? You know, like, when guys want to hit on girls, it's like, yeah, Bianca, how is it going? Um, and yeah, this, <laughs> this song is amazing. Yeah, so it is. And it kind of, like, um, like, celebrates, I guess, a lot of beats from, like, West Africa as well. Like, you can hear that. In yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yeah. I guess, can you just um, tell us a little bit about yourself and, like, the work that you do? Um, so I do, it's hard to say, like after this uh, whole year, you know, you just have like an identity crisis and <laughs> because you don't get to like practice the thing that you normally practice, like who am I? <laughs> um, I saw your post now on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was really hard to come up with this bio, so a friend of mine just wrote it for me. Um, but who, who am I? I am uh, um, I'm a graphic designer. I'm a herbalist. I'm like self-training in herbalism. I'm training to become a yoga teacher. I'm absolutely obsessed with cooking and baking. I'm vegan and it's really important for me. Um, I'm black and it's really important for me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I guess um, we were kind of speaking about this a bit yesterday when I was like, oh, come on to our show to talk about this thing tomorrow. Um, but, yeah, you just mentioned um, blackness and veganism. And I guess, you know, so I was like looking last night a little bit. I was like, oh, I need to ask a question about black veganism and everything. <laughs> and everything I was looking, like I just searched black veganism and it was all written yeah. by white people, you know, and I was like, what? Um, so I guess... Oh. Yeah, like, and black veganism is really about decentering, it's about decentering, um, whiteness and it's rooted in black liberation. And could you speak mm-hmm. a little bit about it for people who don't mm-hmm. know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so to me, like, my understanding of black veganism is not only like black veganism when we're only talking about the topic of food, right? It's about, as you said, like, black liberation and like, stopping oppression of all forms. Um, so like stopping black oppression, but also like animal oppression. It's about land rights. It's about, uh, food justice. It's about like, um, having access to like healthy food to all of, all of the communities. It's about like justice for the farm workers. It's, it, it, it's encompassing like all of those, um, issues, social issues. But yes, like, I feel like uh, veganism has always existed in our communities, but it's just that white folks have marketed it and uh, just, like, took over, basically. But, um, yeah, it's like there's so many dishes that are just naturally vegan, but we just don't stamp the, the label veganism on it, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and also there's that idea, I guess, as well, um, that you know, meat shows wealth or something like that um, when heaps, like, especially like, I don't know, especially in, in West Africa, but, like, I guess all over um, <laughs> different parts of the world, um, yeah, lots of dishes are naturally vegan because meat wasn't easily accessible. Exactly, exactly. And it's like when you think about, like, the diet, the pre-colonial diet, and when I say pre-colonial, it's, like, pre um uh, invasion of like the white folks, but also like of the Muslim community. It's like there wasn't like meat wasn't always on the table. It was really like you know like for a important occasion. So yeah, like mostly like our diet has been have been mostly vegetarian and vegan. Mm. Um, and you also do um, a bunch of other stuff as well. So you, you're part of a collective called BIPOC Wellness, um, and you also have, um, I don't know, I would call it craft or business, I don't know, dinosaurs and hearts. Can you tell us a bit mm-hmm. about these two things? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a soul venture. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so dinosaurs and hearts, I created it uh well, I, I, I created it this year, really, but I've been ma- making soap for the past two years. And the idea came when someone 
gave me like a fresh patch of soap and I thought it was like the cutest gift ever because it's something that everybody uses every day in the world but I just didn't know how to make it. So um, I got really curious and uh, curious and interested in making it. And so I, decided, I started developing my um, portions and then I got to explore how to make like soap, like African black soap. Now, do you know how excited I was when when you were like, oh yeah, look at this black soap? Because like, usually you could only get it, you can't get it in so-called Australia. Like, you could only get it I in know. like, you know. Can you tell, sorry, keep on going. I, definitely. And the one that you can get online is like completely black, you know. So it's like they, they just add like some charcoal to it and they call it African black soap. <laughs> it's not the real deal. Don't buy it. But... Um, yeah, so what was the question, sorry? Oh, tell us a little it's bit about dinosaurs and hearts and BIPOC wellness. Oh, yeah, so, like, it's just, like, um, an amazing way for me to just be able to, like, connect uh, with herbs and plants and their spirits and craft potions for my friends and for people who just need, like, a little bit of magic in their life. Um and to also ask, like, my mom, how did she use to wash her hair before, you know, because, like, it's so, when you go, like, to those countries and you go to the market, it's so normal to have, like, some, like, just, like, herbalists everywhere, you know, and they just, like, dried herbs on the ground. And you go, you can go to the pharmacy, but you can just also go to the seaport and you just tell them, like, how you're feeling, and they'll give you, like, the plants on the spot. So, like, I can, I'm always asking my mom, like, how, what, how would you use this, this plant if you are feeling this way? Or, like, and so, yeah, she's also giving me, like, cute tips. Yeah, and, um, and also, like, the transfer of, um, you know, uh, community knowledge as well. Um, and mm. that being transferred from, you know, from our elders, uh, down mm. and how that's kind of so, totally being erased, you know, in, the sort of broader capitalist, mm-hmm. like, you know, societies where, you know, you just go to a doctor or you go to the pharmacy and you get this product that was mass produced and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I suppose, could you just tell us a little bit about what's going on tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. And also like speaking about, um, yeah, the way, the way, like, the difference between, like, Western medicine and non-Western medicine is that, yeah, there's, like, yeah. such a disconnect with the, the emotions as well, because when you go to, like, a regular Western medicine doctor, they just, like, give you drugs, and they don't talk about, like, what leads you to, to your current state, you know, and I feel like everything is just, like, so connected that you cannot just, like, treat one aspect, one aspect of the illness and not, like, talk about how, what led you to it, mm. you know? And I feel like the connection with the plants, it's also like talking about the sensitivity of the flowers and the leaves and how it can relate to like your own sensitivity and your own emotions and how you can really treat them, treat them as a friend, as an ally, and that will literally like come in and, and take it all off from you. Mm. Um, but to go back to your question, uh, tomorrow is, yeah, so the event is called Channel Kitty Park and it's just going to be a display of, um, Kitty Pie greatness. Um, most of the folks will be in Nam, but there's also some folks that will be on Gadigal, uh, country. 
There's going to be four DJs. There's going to be a cooking class, a makeup demo. I'm going to make uh, a soap demonstration for the first time. Um, and what else? And I think that's pretty much it. Uh-huh. But yeah, and it's led by Invisible, which is an amazing youth service uh, based in Nam, and they've been so supportive of all of my projects. Ever since I've moved here, so a big shout-out to Bex, a big shout-out to Rose, a big shout-out to Claire. Love you all. <laughs> um, and it's at 4 p.m. And how can, if listeners, um, uh, people of colour listeners want to join, um, how can they do so? So they can just um, go to the Facebook event uh, on Invisible's Facebook page or on their Instagram, but because it's the last event of 2020 for Invisible, they actually made it open to everyone, so even white folks for one can access this oh, event. Oh, right. Here yeah, I am just saying yeah, no, it's for only. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for once. That's the only one, though, just so you know. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. Okay, that's all we have time for. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, and um, hopefully I'll see you online tomorrow at this event. Yeah, come through. <laughs> Thanks, Ami. See ya. Thank you. Bye. And that was Aminata, who is a true vegan or Aquarian vegan weirdo, and she'll be a guest artist tomorrow um, on a Cutie Pock channel hosted by Invisible. And that's just about all we have time for this morning. But I just want to raise that last night the Morrison government pushed legislation through the Senate to extend the trial of the cashless debit card for a further two years. And so there's been a lot of community mobilisation against the bill which was able to prevent the card from becoming permanent. But with the support of One Nation and absence of Sterling Griff in the Senate, that amended bill was passed. And so we're going to definitely be covering that issue next Thursday. And a very quick rundown for today, the 10th of December. So we heard from Carol Shway and Joel Spring. Um, they had a conversation as part of digital launch of the hyphenated Biennale 2020-2021. Then we heard from George Newhouse from the National Justice Project about the High Court of Australia recent decision, ruling that the federal court has the power to hear the claims of over 50 refugees and asylum seekers. Then we heard from Liz Crash, local historian, about the redevelopment of Pentridge Prison. And then Keith Quayle on Pride and Protest and their pushback at the Mardi Gras AGM on Saturday the 5th of December to push cops and corrective services out of the Mardi Gras parade. And then lastly, Aminata, who joined us to speak about Channel Cutie Pop that's hosted by the Community Queer-Led Program that connects POC and um, Invisible on Friday, the December the 11th. Um, and just a quick plug, uh, so uh, at about 9.30am, uh, uh, one of our great uh, radio hosts, uh, MV, will be speaking with Haikai Yasseran, uh, who is the Director of the Armenian National Committee of Australia, about the 27th of September 2020, Azerbaijan-initiated war against the Republic of Art. Uh, the misrepresentation and the omission of the 1915 Armenian genocide in, in the mainstream media um, landscape. Well, <laughs> I don't know, I just forgot about that word. Uh, that's all we have time for. Please join us again tomorrow for uh, breakfast and we'll be back next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.